I do, I do echo Jonathan's prayer that uh, we as a leadership might continue to know the Lord's will and direction uh, in these ever-changing times. I invite you to turn now to the, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, I'll be doing the Bible reading for us this morning. And while you're making your way to Hebrews chapter 7, I'm going to read for you the first four verses of Psalm 110, which is a very familiar psalm and a very important psalm in the New Testament. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And now, Hebrews chapter 7. Buckle up. (laughs) I'm just going to warn you, this is going to feel really heady. All right? But, but, uh, this is what we're going to unpack this morning. So, I'll do my best to read it with the appropriate inflection. I'm actually going to start in verse 20 of chapter 6. He, that is Jesus, has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belongs to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. 
For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this powerful exposition, we pray that you would enlighten our hearts through the Holy Spirit to encourage us to see the greatness of this salvation. Father, may you strengthen our hearts by grace. May you keep us faithful, for Jesus is our treasure. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we come uh, to this series. This series is called Seeing Jesus. And you may have been in a, a setting at one time or another where, you know, take your daughter to work day or take your, take your son to work day, or you might just been asked to observe somebody at their job. Well, this is a great text. If you've ever wondered what's Jesus' job and what is he doing, this is a text that really unpacks it for us. And so the hope is that as you see Jesus, you don't just simply recall what he has done in the past, but as you see Jesus this morning through the light of Scripture and through the eyes of faith, you would see what Jesus is doing right now. We've titled this message, Our Perfect Priest, because that is the whole point this text is driving to. Uh, last week, we looked uh, at Hebrews chapter 6 and talked about the certainty, the assurance that comes from resting on the promises of God. And my iPad's not working, so I'm just going to look behind me. <laughs> uh, the certainty of our hope had rested firmly on God's promises in three things. His name, his character, and then his mediator. 
Now, this mediator is another word, uh, another way of describing what a priest's job is. And I thought it might be good to start this morning as we think about what a priest is. Because most of us, when we think about a priest, we think of a guy who sits in a box, or we think of somebody in robes, or we think of sort of smells and walking around. And priests are one of those people who oftentimes today, by the way they dress or the way they appear, they just seem very distant and unrelatable. But you need to realize that the whole purpose of a priest was to help you be relatable to God. It was to bridge the gap between where we are and where God is. It was to close down that distance, to enable us to have a real and authentic relationship with our creator. That's, that's the job of a priest. It's to stand in the gap to be a mediator in my Bible reading, I'm going through the book of Job right now. And, and Job, if you know his story, he, he was a righteous man. He did all sorts of great things. But suddenly disaster, calamity came upon him. He was suffering. And no one could really explain his suffering. Most of the book is people trying to explain his suffering. It doesn't go very well. But there's this point in chapter 9 where Job is just crying out. He's saying, I just want somebody to plead my case. I just want somebody to, to, to go into the hallways of heaven and knock on God's office door and say, hey, can you, can you come and look at me? Understand where I am and understand what I need and bring me, God, bring me into your blessing. Bring me back into the path of righteousness. Job is saying, God, my world is falling apart. And he realizes he can't go for himself. You see, that's the mistake we often make in our day and age. We become really casual with this idea of connecting with God. Oh, I just throw up a prayer. Oh, I just, you know, decide to do this. I'm going to let God be in my life as if my whole existence, my life was not something that God had created and given to me. You see, he allows me in his existence. It's not the other way around. We can't go to God on our own. The book of Romans proves that point powerfully. And so when this text talks about being a priest, Jesus is seen as the one whose job is to make God relatable to us and to bring us into relationship with God. He provides us access. So the big question this morning that I want you to be thinking about as we go through this text is what gives us confidence before God? What gives us confidence before God? This is really important. Is it what you do? Is it the tradition that you were raised in? Is it your participation in, in rituals? Is it the opinions of others, maybe key leaders in your life, and they've said things about you, and, and that gives you confidence because, well, if they affirm me, well, then maybe God affirms me as well. Is it your ability to discipline yourself in the ways of God? Is that what gives you confidence before God? It's a really important question. You see, it's separate from the question, does God exist? And it's separate from the question of, does God love me? It's about how are you coming to God? 
What gives you confidence? The simple truth is that we need someone to bring us to God. If you've ever felt inadequate, if you've ever felt that sense of, I I just can't go to God on my own, don't dismiss that. That's that's legit. (laughs) Okay? In yourself, in your flesh, in, in just you, you are not enough. God made you? Yes. Does he love you? Absolutely. Can you have a relationship with him? Yes. Can you establish that relationship on your terms or on your own? Not a chance. Not a chance. We are not enough to call down the blessings of heaven. We are not enough to enter into the pearly gates. I I really hate this idea of people spending their lives thinking about what they're going to say when they get to heaven. What am I going to say when I get to the pearly gates? As if they spend their whole life concocting an argument. When in the reality, the reality is you you won't even have the conversation. It's It's not a conversation to be had. You know, cartoons depict a standing, you know, St. Peter there, and he's sort of like, you know, making this evaluation. And if you can, if you can sort of get by St. Peter, well, then, okay, you're in. Or, well, you know, if you sort of know Jesus' mother, if, if you pray to Mary or some of these other saints and you know them really well, then, then, well, you know, they'll just sort of whisper in Peter's ear from behind the fence, hey, it's okay, they can come in. You're not even going to have the conversation without Jesus, And this is what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he made the most exclusive statement of all, no one gets to the Father except through me. He's not being cold or callous. He's not being prideful. He's just being specific. He's just telling you exactly how it is. No one gets to the Father but through me. So the simple truth is we need an advocate. And the good news for Christians is he is the advocate. So the big idea this morning is that Jesus is our perfect high priest. He is our perfect high priest. You don't need another one. The good news is even though there's no chance you stand on your own, the great news is Jesus gives you every chance. You are so secure and settled and perfect because of his relationship, his role, his office. So what it means is seeing Jesus for us today, brothers and sisters, seeing Jesus is meeting our best advocate, our best advocate. You ever found yourself in a sticky situation and you're like, I know this really looks bad right now. I know I really don't look very good in this scenario, but if you could just talk to my spouse, you know, they know me and this is the things that I normally do and, and they could tell you all my other great qualities or, you know, you just want to call up your childhood friend and, 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 and tell, tell your neighbor, you know, he's really not a scumbag. Like, uh, he's, he's really normal. You ever been in a situation like that? You're like, I just need somebody to plead my case. Jesus is your best advocate. And I hope that that we begin to scratch the surface today for your understanding of what it means to have an advocate like Jesus. Because when you know the advocate you have in Jesus, you won't go looking for anything else. You will stop trying to clean up your life to become impressive to God. Because you realize you already got the best advocate. 
And you will simply embrace your relationship with him and approach God in that way, in a way of trust and dependence. That's what I hope you see when you see Jesus this morning. Now, in terms of our overview, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 28, it is a section that is laying the foundation for the main argument of the whole book. Yes, we're still, <laughs> we're still laying the groundwork here. 7, 1 to 28 is the foundation for the main argument that most scholars would say this. The main argument that comes in chapter 8, verse 1 to about midway through chapter 10. That's what we have in front of us. Now, he does this by sort of laying out three, three main planks. The first plank is the Melchizedekian priesthood. The second plank is... This contrasted with the Levitical priesthood. And the third plank is how this is perfected in Jesus, God's son, okay? That's kind of theologically the framework of the argument and how it sits within the text. In terms of our, the message this morning, the message this morning is really gonna try to answer three questions, okay? What kind of priest is Jesus? What kind of priest is he? The second question, second question, why do we need a new kind of priest? Why do we need a new kind of priest? And the third question, why is Jesus' priesthood superior? So, what kind of priest is Jesus? That's the first question, verses 1 to 10, answer that. The second question is, why do we need a new priest? And the third question is, why is Jesus' priesthood superior? So the second and third points are kind of a negative, sort of the second point's a negative statement, and the third one is a positive statement. That's where we're going this morning. All right, God's priest, verses 1 to 10 of chapter 7, you'll see that uh, Jesus here is a permanent priest. That's the kind of priest that he is. <clears throat> So if we look at verse 10, we'll see that Melchizedek is likened to Jesus. Melchizedek is likened to Jesus. Now, this is important because it's not saying that Jesus is Melchizedek. It's not saying that, uh, it's not saying that this Melchizedekian priesthood um, is something that Jesus stepped into. What he's trying to say is Jesus has a priesthood and the closest example, the closest parallel we have is the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so he tries to sort of bring those two in together. Follow the argument. Now, I better give you some backstory. <laughs> Melchizedek is kind of a mysterious figure that appears in the Old Testament. He only appears twice in the text. The first is in Genesis chapter 14. That's a narrative account. You, you sort of read about his his interaction with Abraham, which we'll explain in a second. The other place he appears is in Psalm 110, out of the blue, which is, it was sort of gained the reputation of being a messianic psalm. It was a psalm about the hope of the Messiah. Those are the only two places Melchizedek comes up. Again, what you need to know here is the, the point the author's trying to make is not about who this person is so much as what their job was. You wanna know what Jesus' job is, Look at what Melchizedek's job was. That's the closest parallel you're going to find. And that was important because, particularly in the history of God's people, if you would have said, tell me, 
tell me about priests, they would look at the Levites. They would look at Aaron, the high priest. They probably wouldn't have gone straight to Melchizedek. So he's going to explain verses 1 to 10 who Melchizedek is and, and how that informs the kind of priest Jesus was. Now, Melchizedek shows up on the scene in Genesis chapter 14. He's already a king. That's the first way this is different. In the history of God's people, the, the kingly tribe was the tribe of Judah. Kings didn't come from the tribe of Levi. God had separated those two offices. Kings were coming from one branch and priests were in another. Anyone who has experienced trouble with <laughs> the blending of church and state says, oh yeah, that seems to make sense. Keep the, keep the, the civil side separate from the religious side. But here, Melchizedek, he's already a king of Salem. Salem is a place most scholars would say that's Jerusalem. Uh, that's where Jerusalem would be. And he is also serving as a priest, a priest of God most high. He's a mediator. As a priest, Melchizedek was someone who brought sacrifices and worship. He brought right worship to the true and living God, to Abraham's God. Now, the scene is actually quite interesting. If you were in a movie, it would be sort of fascinating to watch. But in the, in the scene, Abraham goes on a rescue mission. His nephew's been taken captive, and Abraham goes out with a, with a smallish group of men and defeats all these kings. So there were five kings against four, and I forget if the four beat the five or the five beat the four. Someone can correct me later. Uh, but one group of kings beat the other group of kings. Lot got taken captive. Abraham comes to the rescue. He routs the previously uh, victorious kings, and he takes, he, he's, he's returning from battle. As he's returning from battle, he actually encounters two kings. One is Melchizedek, another is the king of Sodom. Sodom was a wicked place. The king of Sodom tries to offer Abraham some of the plunder and some of the spoil. And Abraham says, nah, -uh, nope. I know what's coming to me. I know the promises that God made to me. I'm not going to let the, the, the realizing of those promises be tainted with the wickedness of, of you and your kingdom. So he says, no, I'm not having any. The other king comes out bringing bread and wine. It's Melchizedek. He's a king, but he's also a priest. And in that interaction... Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Now, it might make sense to us to think of the greater blessing the lesser because we think of, well, we need the blessing of God. The greater has to come down to me. But in the culture of the day, that's not how it worked. The lower was supposed to bless the greater. Think of somebody coming in to sort of kiss the ring. <laughs> so there's this reversal here. But Abraham shows he knows his place by the fact that he gives a tenth of all that he has to this priest, king. But the point that the author wants to fixate on is that this Melchizedek figure appears without an origin story, without a genealogy, and really without any rec record of his office ending. And it's sort of this reasoning from the Old Testament narrative account that Melchizedek, he's a kind of priest who he's, all we know of him is he's been a priest and he continues to be a priest king. 
And it's that permanence that he's trying to drive home to the reader. That permanent priesthood is is the thing that he says that's the closest to Jesus. You want to know what kind of priest Jesus is? He's a king priest. He's a king of righteousness and a prince of peace, but he's a priest who holds that position forever. And this is exactly what God says in Psalm 110. That's God's oath. You're a priest forever. So he's a king priest with a permanent appointment. You want to understand Jesus' ministry? It's royal. It's intercessory. And it's ongoing forever. A lot of people think of Jesus as their savior. They understand the priestly component, but they forget that he is their Lord. They forget the kingly component. So this idea of obedience to the words of Jesus is sort of conveniently left to the side. Some of you who've grown up in very legalistic backgrounds, you have a very clear picture of Jesus as king, but you're really a bit bit fuzzy and soft on the idea of Jesus as priest. So you get that you have to obey him, but you question the legitimacy of his sacrifice for you. The Bible never pulls those two things apart from Jesus' ministry. He is Savior and he is Lord. And if you receive him in that way, and you accept his permanent appointment to that position, and you call and profess that he is your Savior and Lord, guess what? The Bible says you are saved on the basis of his permanent office. Now, why was it necessary? Why was it necessary for a new priest to come? This is explained in verses 11 to 19, sort of the second section of this argument. 11 to 19, a new priest was necessary because the law was insufficient. The law was insufficient to do what needed to happen for God's people to be brought back into relationship with him. And interestingly enough, the law does not make the priest. Here the argument is the new priest means there must be a new law. A permanent priest must be officiating off of some different code than what the Savior, excuse me, than what the Levites were officiating off of. And the point is made pretty clearly. There's no, uh, you know, you couldn't get perfected. There's no, there's no perfection. The priests themselves were insufficient. This argument builds steam when you consider the timing of God's oath. If God's oath in Psalm 110 is written by David who's probably one of the earlier writers of the Psalms, there's already a priestly system in place. Why would God say, you're a priest forever when he's already got these other priests? That's the argument. If God's priests through the tribe of Levi were doing the job if those people who were sacrificing rams and goats and sprinkling blood in, 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 in the tabernacle and all that, if that was sufficient, if perfection could, be, could arrive through that, could be achieved through that, then how and why would God then later on initiate this other priesthood that's not like a Levitical priesthood and, and, and give it a permanent appointment? It's like saying... 
why are you still running Windows XP? Now, some of you say, well, Windows XP is more stable. You know, I know it, it works well. But there will come a day when Windows XP is obsolete. And you know their intention is to make it obsolete by the fact they keep releasing new models. A lot of people accuse Apple of that, right? They, they, they build, there's a term for this and I'm forgetting it at the moment, someone could shout it out if you wanted. But they, 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 they build into the, accuse them of building into their technology the fact that it will break down. But the point is, they're making new models because they're saying the old one is not sufficient. Why is there a new permanent priest if the other ones are, were doing their job and were already around working? Look at verse 15. What we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. That's a key verse. You see, the, next gen the, the, the permanency of the Levitical priesthood was really dependent upon men and women having babies. The tribe of Levi raising children and the next generation would come and if your dad was a Levitical priest and you were a son born to him, guess what? You get to be a priest too. On the basis of the regulation, the protocols that have been put in place through the law covenant. But here, there's a new priest who's appeared. He has a permanent appointment, and, and the basis of his appointment is an indestructible life. Now, you might look at this and think, oh, is this the resurrection? Kind of. <laughs> kind of. This is not saying Jesus is a permanent priest because he rose from the dead. It's saying he's a permanent priest because he could not be destroyed. There was something about his pre-existent nature that qualifies him to this eternal appointment. It's similar to what Peter says when he's talking to the church in the book of Acts and he says, the grave could not hold him. Death could not overcome him. Psalm 16 speaks of this. You would not let your Holy One see decay. So Jesus' qualification for this office is not simply based on the virtue of his resurrection. That's a, that's a result of who he is. He has an indestructible life. But the point in this section is that the other models are not sufficient. Look at verse eight, excuse me, uh, 18. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and it was useless. Verse 19, the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. The blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient to bring people back into relationship to God. There is no ritual, there is no act of worship, there is no, there's nothing you can physically do yourself that will fully and finally settle the matter with God. You needed a perfect priest. Those other priests weren't perfect. They weren't permanent. 
and they belonged to a system of relating to God that was never designed ultimately to finish the job. What it was designed to do was to make the people aware of their fallenness, aware of their shortcomings, while simultaneously becoming aware of God, and while simultaneously as well being kept in relationship with God so that they could be ready when this priest was revealed. The old law was a schoolmaster, Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3. He was a tutor preparing the children for the day of adoption when dad comes home and he says, these are my kids. But the reasoning here is very careful. It's very precise. He reasons from the appointment of Jesus to this permanent priesthood. He's saying, if this is a new kind of priest... And he's going to be doing that job forever. Well, that means that the system that appointed these other priests is no longer valid. A new priest must entail a new way of relating to God. That's the logic. And then in verse 20, it's sort of the icing on the cake. 20 to 25, we return to the idea of the oath. And we're going to see how this leads us to the place where Jesus is the priest who meets our every need. So in 20 to 25, in 20 to 25, we see here that God puts Jesus in this position by an oath. He binds himself to it. It's not just he says it's true, but he swears to it. And he swears by himself. You can go back and look at previous messages to hear about the power of an oath. What he's doing is he's basically expounding Psalm 110 for you. In verses 11 to 19, he looked at the appointment of Jesus as a priest forever. And now, in verses 20 to 25, he's looking at the oath. And notice he says, verse 22, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, guarantor can, can have two senses. The first sense, and the NIV's chosen to go this way, is a guarantor is somebody who makes sure that the will as written is executed faithfully. If a covenant was like a will, it was like an agreement, God said, these are the terms, this is how it is. A guarantor is the one who's put in a position to make sure that the terms of that covenant are enforced properly. He's the guarantor. But, another sense, and, and this word just has a wide meaning, another sense is guarantee or proof. And likely, both senses are intended here. So yes, Jesus in his priestly office is the one who ensures that the new covenant is established in the way that, and it will never fail, but and I lean, personally, I lean this way. He himself is the guarantee. He is the proof. His appointment is proof of a new way of relating to God. It makes sense, doesn't it? 
If there's this old way of relating to God where you're judged on the basis of your obedience and your performance and you, you know, and at the end of the day, you have to make sure that the, that the amount of sins is, is atoned for with the right amount of sacrifices and, 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 and that those sacrifices fit, you know, all these boxes. And if that's not able to get you to God, well, isn't the proof that there's a new way to get to God, the fact that God has put somebody in that place to be your advocate? To say it another way, Jesus' existence, his resurrection and his permanent place as your high priest is proof that everything he said about the new covenant is true. It's proof that you have someone who will stand in the gap, who will bear what you can't, who will be your advocate, who will take what was rightfully yours that you can graciously be brought back into a close relationship with God. You, you can draw near to God now. The fact that Jesus is standing at the altar, serving at the altar of God, is proof that all those other ways are not the way. He hearkens back to this in 23 and following. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. I mean, imagine thinking that you're, you're standing before God dependent on this person over there doing their job. And you know what? Maybe you get a good one. Maybe you get a real faithful priest and you're really confident before God because, wow, that person does their job really, really well. And then they get, you know, gored by an ox or run over by a cart or, you know, they fall by the wayside. And then, then you get a new one. And this one's, you know, this one could care less. They don't know anything about God. They're just being a priest because, hey, it's what dad did. And frankly, they're not really interested in the things of God. They're interested in other things. How confident would you feel? You're like, you're my priest. You're the one who's meant to represent me to God. And over time... This cycle of just death, it really undermines a lot of your confidence, doesn't it? That my standing before God is really secure. Uh, The ancient writer, historian Josephus, calculated there were 83 high priests. 83 high priests from the time of Aaron, the first high priest, to the destruction of the temple. 83. That's a lot. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And I'm not going to be able to put into words how glorious these next few verses are. So I encourage you just to remember them. Meditate on them this week. We'll start in 25. Uh, They get me a little bit excited. So if I get excited, please bear with me. Therefore... Because we have this permanent priest, therefore he, that is Jesus, is able to save completely. Some of the other English versions would say, save to the uttermost. The best sense I can make of it is, Jesus is able to save you in every way that there is to be saved. 
addicted to sin, he can save you from that. False teaching, false understanding, he can save you from that. Oppression from evil forces, he can deliver you from that. Under the just condemnation and wrath of God, he can free you from that. Imperfect in your body, imperfect in your relationships, imperfect in your attitudes and in the inclinations of your heart, he can save you from that. In every way possible that a human being needs to be saved, Jesus can save you that way. If that doesn't make the hairs on your neck stand up, I don't know what will. I don't know all the ways you need to be saved. (laughs) I know some of them from scripture. I know some of them from my own personal experience. I don't know all of them, but I don't need to know them. Your partner doesn't need to know and fully understand them. Your children or parents or grandparents, your boss doesn't need to fully comprehend or grasp all of this. You don't need them. You need an advocate who can save you in every way. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He can save you to the uttermost. As the old preacher liked to say, I forget who said it, from the guttermost to the uttermost. Such a high priest. Oh, sorry, we're not there yet. He can save to the uttermost. Not everyone. Listen, those who come to God through him. You got to come through Jesus. This is why we baptize people and why we ask them to profess their faith. You got to come through Jesus. You don't come through Jesus, this doesn't apply to you. I know I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are here because you know that. But do the people in your life know that? Do they know that's why you're a Christian? It's a good question to ask. He always lives to intercede for them. Oh my goodness, Jesus, you know, we think so much of what he did on the cross and hallelujah for the cross. We will never forget the cross. He told us to remember that. But do you forget what he's doing now? Like, what is he doing now? He's interceding for you. He's he's bringing you to God. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is only possible and only real right now, today, in this moment, 13 Feb 2022. It's only possible because Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for you, saying, give your spirit to that one. Dwell in that one. Father, make your home in them because they're mine. Father, bring the kingdom and power in that life because they're mine. Such a high priest, verse 26, truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. You know, he was like us, but he's not like us. Because that weakness, that crippling, enslaving hindrance of sin... The curse of death. He bore it, but not because he deserved it. He bore it because he was taking it for us. 
And he is now exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. You see, that was meant to be a lesson. If the sacrifice is sufficient, why do you keep, need to keep doing it? We're going to hear more about that in a few weeks. He didn't need to offer for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Instead, he sacrificed himself for their sins once for all. So, grand conclusion, summary statement, verse 28. For the law, this old system, the system that was for Jews only, the system given through Moses, the system meant to point us to the truer realities The law appointed as high priests men. Men in all their weakness. But the oath, (laughs) verse 20, the oath which came after the law appointed the Son. Yep, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal pre-existent Son, the Logos himself, the Word of God, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Case closed. The gates open. As Paul would tell the Corinthians, he'd say, I'm I'm pleading with you. (laughs) I'm begging with you. Be reconciled to God. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. There's this window of opportunity right now. You can walk back into relationship with God. You can be saved to the uttermost. You have to go through Jesus You have to receive him for who he is, the king priest forever. But what you can do, brothers and sisters, is stop worrying. Stop worrying about the sufficiency of Christ. Stop worrying if if God's really going to accept you by him. There's this refreshing moment that happens in a workplace sometimes when you're scrambling and you're trying to get a lot of things done, not related to that this week, been scrambling a lot, trying to get all these things done. And then you're thinking, how is this gonna happen? How's it gonna get done? And you worry, 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 worry. And then the boss comes over and they said, I got it. That's my job. Let me do my job. Brothers and sisters, take a big sigh of relief and let Jesus do his job this week. Let him be him. Let him be your advocate. Let him be your priest. Let him be the one who brings you back into relationship with God. And let your focus be bringing yourself to God in a posture of worship. If I know that I can come to God and I can stop worrying about how to get there, 
then my next concern is simply just, how do I worship him because I've been led into his presence? Let's pray. Lord, what a glorious joy it is to know that Jesus lives forever. Thank you, God, for confirming his appointment as our priest and advocate. Lord, thank you for bringing us, Lord, Gentiles, people who, who were not a part of the original covenant, Lord, but who were grafted in like that wild, wild branch. Lord, thank you that his advocacy applies to us as well. Lord, I pray for those who are not sure, and I pray that they would reach out for you, they would draw near to you in a sincere heart of worship and faith. I pray that they would respond to the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you soften our hearts and fill us with hope and joy. Lord, may we not obsess over ourselves, but may we be consumed with a zeal for your kingdom. Lord, not because we're trying to prove that we belong, but because we know that we belong because of Jesus. Lord, would you reassure our hearts this week in your name, amen.